and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. This week, we're heading to the Philippines in Southeast Asia, to the heart of Manila, to meet Filipino portrait and fashion photographer Artu Nepomuceno. Artu caught my attention when I spotted and admired his work on newsstands in the UK on the front cover of Vogue. He travelled to a remote village in the mountains of Kalinga to photograph Apo Wang Ode, the world's oldest traditional Kalinga tattoo artist, for Vogue Philippines' April cover story. Apo is 106 years old. The last Mambabatok, which means hammering-style tattoo artist, we'll hear more about that from R2 in a minute, of the Butbut tribe, and is passing on her knowledge and wisdom to her grandnieces to keep the ancient inking art alive. But it wasn't just R2's portraits I found beautiful. I was captivated by the incredible story behind his shoot, how it came about, and the messages it spoke. So just back from another shoot, Artu joins me now from Manila. Artu, this is a podcast first for us heading out to Southeast Asia. What have you been up to today? Hi, Helen. First off, thanks for having me. I'm so, so excited to speak to you. I have to have this really, really rich conversation. I just got back from a shoot and uh, actually quite funny, I had a terrible day, not because of the shoot, but I made the worst mistake any photographer could make. I left my home. And I forgot my camera bag. And <laughs> if anyone who has been to the Philippines, once you leave your home and you're on the road, the traffic is insane. So my shoot was delayed by almost an hour because I had to book a courier to emergency, pick up my camera bag on his motorcycle and drive all the way to the location. Long story short, I gave him a big tip as a big thank you for kind of saving my day. Oh, uh, my The rest goodness. of the day was pretty good, but it didn't start well. Oh, crumbs. That is not good. I thought you were going to say you kept the <laughs> lens cap on or something like that. <laughs> that would be bad too. But you made that it. That sounds like something I'd make. <laughs> yeah, I did make it. Uh, the shoot went well. We worked double time, but yeah, uh, big mistake. So making sure that I have all kinds of signs in all my doors and all my mirrors to make sure I don't make that mistake again. I'll send you some post-it notes. Was it yes, a uh, commercial shoot, a fashion shoot? What, what, what was the shoot today? It was a shoot for a jewelry line. And uh, it when it comes to jewelry, I have a particular set of equipment that's really specific for the objectives of that shoot. So it's not something that I could have borrowed from colleagues or other photographer friends that could have sent it from a more convenient spot. It had to be my gear which I don't live near to most anything. I'm around 40 to 50 minutes away by car. So it wasn't easy. I know the traffic in Manila can be crazy. Just give us a sense of what Manila is like. A lot of people who have been to the Philippines, and I would say a lot of Filipinos, both living in the Philippines and who are living abroad, know that the traffic here is insane. It's really bad. But when it becomes the holiday season, which starts around September, I kid you not, September 1, we start having Christmas music in the malls. Our Christmas decoration is pretty much the brake lights and the headlights of the traffic. It goes endless. You know that scene of when Lion King where he says, your eyes can see the distance and all of that? It's pretty much it for traffic in the Philippines. Like As far as you can see, the lights are just twinkling. It sounds beautiful in a way, but frustrating <laughs> if you're trying to zip across, zip across the yeah. city to get to exactly. a podcast. But you've made it. Not only did you make it on time, you made it early, which was amazing. Oh. I've been dying to hear. Tell me about Apo Wang Ode and who this special lady is or to. Oh my gosh, I don't even know where to start. 
I didn't know anything about Apawang until I probably was just about to finish college. A late friend of mine, it was in his bucket list. We were doing a hike in this place called the Banawi Rice Terraces, which is not too far from where Apawangad lives. And this was, I think, back in 2011 or 2010. And he tells me that it's in my bucket list to go get a tattoo by this old lady, Apawangod. I had no idea who she was. I researched after I kind of fell in love with her story and it became my bucket list myself. It was actually the original plan was to go with my friend, but sadly he had uh, passed away from rare cancer. After his passing, I kind of made it my goal to also just go there myself. And I never got to do it. To be honest, the reality set in, I had to get to work. I didn't really have much time to go back to the adventures and everything. And then I got this call from the editor-in-chief of Vogue Philippines. And it's just the most random call. And she just, hi, do you want to shoot Apawangod? And we're good friends, Bea Valdez, the editor-in-chief. And... It was just so random. And when I heard it, it was like an instant, yes, I want to shoot up Wangod. So the shooting her was quite amazing. Meeting her was the most incredible thing. It just felt like meeting family. Apawangod is this 106-year-old sweet, sweet lady who walks like a 70, 60-year-old, so healthy, has her coffee in the morning, gets straight to work, can work up to maybe 200 people in a day. Um, doing her tattoos and then rests and goes to sleep and then repeats the next day. She's just the sweetest thing. That's amazing. And is she quite iconic in the Philippines? Do a lot of people know of her and, and what she does? Yes, she's quite the treasure here, I would say. Like the country, they all adore her, even prior to the cover. There had been a, quite a lot of uh, photographs and videos and documentaries that have been made about her prior to the cover. Some incredible photos by Paco Guerrero and Jake Versosa, to name a couple. They had done the trip, they have written stories, and she's just, she's known beyond the tattoo community. Globally, she's been known for her tattoos, for traditional tattooing. But in the Philippines, she's just really quite the treasure for being a tattoo artist, but also kind of just being a cultural icon, being kind of very remote from Manila, being remote from all forms of modernism. She just sticks to what she's grown up with, which was actually being a tattoo artist of warriors back then for her tribes people. Oh, is that for right? Warriors. For warriors. So it was actually back then a practice of theirs to tattoo on the women would tattoo on men who were warriors and the men could only get tattoos if they were actually back from battle or if they were successful in a hunt and so forth so it was kind of like a big thing and for women getting tattooed was actually an art form to beautify themselves so it was sort of like i i yeah obviously this is like not the direct translation, but the way it was kind of said, it was like, if you don't have tattoos on your skin as one of the tribe's people or one of their tribe or their culture, is that you're not good looking. <laughs> it was a means to really beautify yourself. So the more tattoos you had, the more beautiful you were. I know beauty goes so much deeper than skin deep. And we, yes. we'll talk about the, the bigger message that I certainly 
felt, and I know you did from the whole shoot a, a little bit later, but just describe what Apo looks like. The tattoos remind me more of henna, actually, in the Indian culture, pretty and delicate. Can you just describe the, well, we talked about her being a mambabatop. That's the style of yes. tattooing, isn't it? And just describe how she looks, how Apo looks, because her body's yes. beautiful. Yes. So her body is filled with, I would say, literally a story because the symbols that are typically seen in the indigenous people, specifically in Kalinga, there is some form of translation to the shapes, lines, and everything. So it's not just random patterns, or it's actually not symbols that represent certain things, but it's actually a growing language. Or I would say if you can kind of liken it to hieroglyphics, so basically every line could mean something different. So you can have maybe the shape of a triangle, and that could mean something. But if you put two other lines in certain areas, it could mean something completely different. So her tattoos all over her body really represent a certain story. And honestly, if I could, I would ask all about them. But I would probably have to stay there for more than a year to actually know what every part of her body is depicting, what story it's talking about. But it's so beautifully inked into her skin. And what's so wonderful about her and the whole community over there is that they're tattoos, it's not really a means to showcase or to, you know, it's not it's not something that they want to just constantly make you see. What's so beautiful about them is you see them as the people. The tattoos, they come after. And it's such beautiful stories to ask about it. And it's just so engraved in their culture. And it's so beautiful to see. So, Apamangad being 106 and all the years prior, she has these beautiful tattoos that have stuck with her. And for anyone who doesn't know, the process of traditional tattooing here in the Philippines, it's a needle, which is from a pomelo fruit dipped in a charcoal mix. And it's really literally hammered hundreds of times onto the skin. And it's quite painful. No, it's quite painful. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to be tough there, but no, it's, it's really painful. And she's passing on this wisdom and knowledge to her grandnieces, isn't she? So that her techniques live on. Yes, that's correct. Papa Wangad never married. She doesn't have kids of her own. But she has Grace and Elyang, who are her two protégés. They are her grandnieces. Papa Wangad, at this age, she no longer does any of the tattoos that have long symbols or that take a long process. She actually only does the three dots, her signature three dots, which a lot of the people worldwide, Filipinos and foreigners as well, have these three dots, her signature. And those three dots actually represent Apawangod, Grace, and Elyang. It's the three of them. I have the three dots and they really are the signature. And it takes Apawangod five minutes to do, like just really taps in it and she's not gentle. She's very aggressive. It really penetrates through the skin, but it's also really part of the process. So she has Grace, who has the gentlest touch for traditional tattooing. And she has Elyang, who's also like one of the sweetest people that I've met. They're quite incredible people. For example, Grace is quite something. She's quite magical, I would say. When she tattoos, she hums. And it sounds like an enchantment, like some magical puts you into some magical trance and it feels like you are going through some form of healing process, even if you might think you don't need it. It's just there. It's quite incredible. 
That's amazing. Did you have another tattoo as well or did you just no, have the so three dots from Apo? I've been there twice. The first time was when we did the cover. So right after we had shot the cover, she finished the shoot and she goes, okay, let's get some tattoos. So we went right beside her home and then she started tattooing myself and the whole team. And we basically got the three dots. And on my end, I kind of wanted to experience a conversation with everyone, the three. So right after I went to Apawangot, I went to Grace. And then the next day I went to Elyang and I got tattoos by them too. So on my arm, I have all three of them, three signature dots. And then I have arrows, which means movement to them. And then on the bottom, I actually have a dog. A dog which uh, sadly is kind of like my dog passed away a couple of weeks before we had shot. And I kind of was really, really emotional about it. And it just felt like the right space to kind of like meditate on it. So I was with amazing people. And then the next time that I went back to Buskalan, I went back and I was more of an open book. And I went to Elyang, the youngest of the three. And she did a full band around my left arm, which was mountains, which was just basically her own understanding of what I was going through, which was pretty incredible. Oh, it sounds amazing. And it sounds like probably just the perfect time to be in that magical environment, especially the healing aspect of it. Tell me, just going backwards a little bit, R2, did you feel pressure? You talked about the two portraiture artists who had photographed Apo in the past. Was there enormous pressure on your shoulders? And given the fact you knew hopefully this would be a cover story for Vogue? Oh, definitely. That was the most pressure I actually ever felt in my life <laughs> prior to maybe proposing to my wife. <laughs> when I got the call last year, we were supposed to do the shoot on July and then a typhoon hit and the roads were blocked because of some landslides. So we were postponed to, I think, around August and then that got canceled as well. And then it moved to another date a little further and that didn't push through and then my wife and I were set to visit my sister-in-law in Houston by December, and I was worried that I wasn't going to be able to do this shoot anymore. So by October or September, I got a call from Vogue, and they said, I think we have a final date, and it would be the second week of December. Perfect timing, because we were literally going to leave for the States maybe a week later. That was the best opportunity to make this happen. So all those time from the moment I got the call, I had been researching and researching on not just the photos of Jake and Paco, but I was also researching on photos of other people who I had not seen yet or stories that I have not read yet about her videos and everything. And I was just really pressuring myself. And the way it works with Vogue in the Philippines, at least, it's never really a guaranteed cover story. So when Bea reached out to me, she didn't guarantee it was going to be a cover but I had it in my head that I had to try to make it a cover. I had to try to give my absolute best to give justice to Apa Wang Od because she deserves it. She deserves everything. And I felt so worried that if I failed photographing a portrait of Apa Wang Od and it only made it to the inside pages of Vogue Philippines, then I might actually sabotage her chances of actually making a cover ever because the redundancy of getting Apawangod again just to become a cover in the future, the chances of that wouldn't be very high if they already did a feature prior. So I kind of just felt like I had to make it work. It was a 16-hour drive from Manila, straight, painful. Our drivers were amazing. They didn't sleep, barely any pit stops. We made it, and then we did a one-hour hike up, and then we had a late breakfast, and then we kind of set up shots 
already kind of set up where we were going to shoot, suddenly my producer, Anne Zizon, came back to me and he said, oh, hey, I just visited Apawangod and she can't shoot here. She can't shoot anywhere here because we're too high in the village. So basically, the village is resting on the side of a mountain. Every household or every row of houses is one level higher or one level lower. Anne's told me that Apawangod couldn't go this far. Basically, all the references and all the pegs or all the ideas that I had in my mind to do the shoot weren't going to be possible because I couldn't bring Apawangod to certain areas like basically the rice terraces or some clean greenery. I kind of had it in my head that I would photograph her kind of like exploring her village, but outside the village, no architecture, but really more nature. And that obviously wasn't going to work. And I said, okay, where can we shoot? And said she can only go to the balcony or basically the house of Grace. And Grace had this balcony, which was overlooking the mountain on the side of the mountain that they were on. And the day was quite overcast. And that balcony had a roof and it had an open railing and it was a foggy day. When I arrived and we moved there, the plan was to do a quick ocular. But what ended up happening was Apawangod was there. I entered the room and she was there. And suddenly the nerves just crashed on me because adrenaline just rushed into me because I had no time to prepare anymore. She was there and I had to figure out how to do the shot right on the spot. And on my end, I kind of get like anxiety when I know that I don't have the shot and my subject's waiting for me. I don't really like exploring my setup while my subject's there. So that was giving me major anxiety. Luckily, I had my best team with me. I had my full team, which was Choi, Aaron, Sela. They were with me. Basically, I had my team kind of prepare and I kind of just whispered to them what I wanted to happen based on what the environment provided. So Apawangud was sitting down on a chair in a dark space. I pulled out my camera, introduced myself, and we started kind of talking. Sela, one of my assistants, could speak more of their native tongue. It's a little bit different from the dialect of Filipino. There's a lot of sub-dialects. So Sela was doing an amazing job communicating with her. And I was starting to get Apawangad comfortable with the camera, taking pictures, but none of the photos there were really strong. The lighting of that area wasn't quite dynamic. I couldn't really work with it. But once we got comfortable, I kind of set something up by the balcony. So we moved Apawangad to the corner of the balcony where behind her was some architecture, but quite nice glow of light. And on the side of her was some nice light. And basically, my team, we set up a reflector on her right side, outside the balcony. And then my assistant, Choi, held out a light stand and kind of just pulled it all the way out there, hanging outside the balcony with light coming through. And she sat down on that chair. And then I started photographing her. She started getting comfortable. And my assistant, Aaron, who was in the back, was very, very secretly moving in a background behind Apawangod. And then I would kind of give him like some kind of like nudge or I'd look at him and be like, you can move it now. And then he would remove a background and put another color in. In that go, we had maybe two or three really, really good photos. One of the cover images actually from that moment. So it was really all on the spot. And I, I'm telling you this, it sounds like it's a long story, but... That all happened within an hour or <laughs> that was really rushed. Oh yeah. my goodness. But what was going through your mind, Artu? Because I read somewhere in one of the fantastic articles I read about this shoot that you were thinking of your grandparents. That's correct. I came in very emotional to this shoot. Usually I have a pretty good control of 
how I'm feeling. And I'm a very, very hardcore, firm believer that emotions in photo shoots or in photographs are it's an exchange. I have a reservoir of my emotions that when I have a subject that is willing to receive my emotions or willing to make the exchange, then that's what I do. I give my emotions to them and then they give me some of their emotions. And it's quite a beautiful dance. That's how I imagine portraits to be. So when I went to Apawangod, I actually was a little bit out of control with my emotions because my eldest dog had just died and I was super close. I am confident in actually saying that my eldest dog actually saved my life quite a number of times. He was he passed away and it was kind of a rush of pain and everything. And then when we went up to the mountain and I met her, my initial reaction was she reminded me of my grandmother Aww. and she reminded me of my grandfather and somehow. And in the Philippines, family is really deeply rooted in our culture. Definition for me of a Filipino is everything happens at home. We have families here who are multi-generations. We have the grandmother, the son, the son, the son, the son, the daughter, the daughter, the daughter. Then it's all living in one household. So I grew up that way. I grew up with my grandfather and my grandmother living in the same household. When I met Apawangod, it was like instinct. It just felt like I was there to photograph family. And I was lucky enough to kind of have this guiding force unconsciously to remind me that this wasn't a portrait of someone successful or someone popular or someone who had something to prove. When I shook her hand, it was really, oh, this is my grandmother. I'm going to photograph her in the most intimate way possible. I want to make it feel like we're visiting at home and she's just really happy to see maybe her grandson kind of like doing something that he loves. I wanted her to look at me and sort of like feel like she was being photographed by someone precious to her. And I kind of wanted to give her that same justice and kind of just look at her with all the love that I could. My grandfather and my grandmother, they both died in not expected ways. So I had this reservoir feelings that I forgot about for over the years. And it was just a good way to kind of just like release it. Photographing her was kind of that. And I kid you not, after photographing her, I kind of felt like I didn't do justice. I Did you really feel that? Yeah, I really felt that. I brought my laptop in the mountain and I edited on the spot and I felt like I was in love with the photos, but I came home to my wife and I said, I don't think I gave her justice. I was so emotional. I, th- I said, I was so, I was so... Uh, uh, vulnerable. I didn't feel right. I didn't feel like my feelings were put together properly. Panicking with my wife and I was saying, I don't think I've given up a Wanga justice. I think she deserved better. But I was even at this point where I wanted to contact Vogue and say, can I go back? I need to do this again. But I sent the photos and well, it seemed like they loved it. And it seemed like a lot of people did too. Your photographs were loved and admired all over the world. And I was really excited when I saw it. And I thought, I just really need to hear R2's story. And I think Instagram's fantastic for getting hold of people. I was so excited when a few days later, all the way from Manila, the message came back from you that, yes, you'd love to be on the podcast. But what I saw in her face was how alive her eyes were and her smile. And I think as an outsider that you absolutely connected with her. And I think she was looking at you with that intimacy of a grandson. So in my humble opinion, I think you achieved what you set out to do. It means the world to hear that, honestly. 
until now I have multiple copies of the cover at home and I have a copy where she signed with a pencil pen her three dots <laughs> every time I look at it I get goosebumps because I remember hearing this quote and I don't remember who it was from but it was this actor from Hollywood and basically he said that when you think you're at your worst you're actually at your best and uh, I keep going back to that quote every time I see the cover I can't help but think that I still didn't give her justice. But then I start remembering how the day the cover came out, it was just an explosion. I was getting messages here and there, not just congratulations, but like love letters from not fans, but just people who are just so inspired by what they saw on the cover. And to be completely honest, I'm still kind of trying to see what these people saw because I'm still stuck at, this is a portrait of my grandmother. Um, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't, I can't find the ultimate value that people have placed to it, but I can't help but just be so grateful that people are inspired by it. To be able to be part of a story that has sort of redefined beauty in the world is just the most incredible honor I could ever have. And honestly, I'm just a photographer in this. The spotlight belongs to 106 years of just pure beauty of this woman, of Apawang. It's all her. And... Uh, definitely props to Vogue Philippines for having the idea that a 106-year-old woman full of tattoos against all forms of beauty stereotypes that have been defined recently or in the last decade, just destroying all of that and kind of just showing that beauty comes with age. And honestly, it's a wrinkle in time, literally. Yeah, it also was refreshing because it didn't seem like a gimmick. Sometimes front covers can be a gimmick. And it didn't feel like that. It spoke volumes to me. And I think as a woman who's also getting older and, you know, we are aware of how we look and lines and wrinkles. It was just beautiful to see. I mean, she's stunning, isn't she? she? Is. And it was beautiful to see that inner beauty that you also captured, I think, through her eyes and through her smile, just celebrated. When you look at it, how do you think it has redefined beauty? Oh, quite a question. I think people have stopped looking at beauty in the sense that it has to do with makeup or it has to do with certain trends or what their favorite celebrity looks like or their idols. I think what's so incredible is, and this for me is one of the most touching things that I've heard since the cover came out, is that people have started calling their grandparents, their parents beautiful, and it's something that they don't often say. As a child, I would imagine, or as a parent, it's just nice to hear your kid think that you are beautiful because you're a hardworking mother, you're a hardworking father, you're a hardworking grandparent. And I think it's just been so incredible to hear stories about people seeing beauty in a close proximity. It's also so incredible to see the elderly, senior citizens, people with wrinkles look at the mirror and say, hey, I could be in the cover for a magazine too. I think I'm beautiful. And it's just been so special. I think it was because of Apawang that I was very lucky to be able to photograph the craft issue for Vogue Philippines also, which was a bunch of what we call lolas, senior citizens above 60, who have made history in the Philippines. But these people probably never thought that they would be able to be in front of the cover. And I remember talking about that with my mom and my, my sister and my wife. Now there is this weird opportunity, this weirdly beautiful opportunity that grandmothers, grandfathers can actually still become the cover of a globally known magazine. 
That's the most beautiful thing. It's the most beautiful thing to hear. And what do you think it meant to Apo and her grandnieces? Was she excited about that prospect? To be completely honest, I don't think Apo Wangot even knew what Vogue was. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's got her own business. She's minding her own stuff. Like all she wants to do is really tattoo all day, meet people. She loves biscuits and she loves her coffee. But when Vogue reached out to do the story, only a handful of people in the community who actually had access to the internet or who had been to Manila knew about the magazine. But most of the community there, they are disconnected by choice. They don't really want to be that connected to the world and be part of all these trends and everything. They're just doing their thing and they love it. They're so good at it. They have such a sweet community and they are considered indigenous people, but hanging out to them just feels way more advanced than any conversation that I'm having in the city, honestly. It just <laughs> there's more fruitful conversations over there. Oh, I love being in the middle of nowhere and talking to people who live that slower, gentler, more natural exactly. way of life. And there's a beautiful irony, isn't it, that there she is in this remote, beautiful village in the mountains and yet smiling all around, all the, world. around the world. I read as well that you felt that you discovered perhaps a renewed pride in your Filipino identity as well through doing this shoot and through telling Apo's amazing story. Yes, definitely. For one, I kind of have a hard time looking at my skin now <laughs> and not want to have it inked by the community <laughs> just because there's just so much story that happens and the conversation that builds up from the tattoos puts people on a very, very good frequency. It's sort of like when I enter a space and they see the tattoo, we jump straight to a very rich conversation about the story about Apawangod, the story of the people there and the story of just getting tattoos the traditional way. And I feel like this is so deeply rooted to the culture of the Philippines. There was no colonial mindset. There was no colonial influence in their area. They were really quite disconnected from all forms of influence from any country or any foreigner, basically. So it's really deeply rooted to their Filipino roots. And it was just so nice to, to kind of learn all of that. I'm born and raised in the city of Manila. I grew up here with city lights, with everything, and I never really felt connected truly to my roots other than the occasional going to the provinces and doing missions with the organization I'm with called Waves for Water or just traveling for fun. But when we went here, there was a deeper sense to the whole conversation. And I just want to share like one very, very small story. So when my wife and I went back to Buscalan, we went there with the organization, the NGO that we're with. Our objective was to give water filters to the communities that needed access. The tribe or the Buscalan community basically needed some access to cleaner water. So we went there. And when we had traveled to Buscalan, my wife had just suffered from a miscarriage, um. had lost our baby boy. And it was quite an emotional journey for us over the weeks since it had happened. And Grace, the grandniece of Abawangan, had no idea, of course, of what had happened to us. But we went there. We had a conversation with Grace. We were just hanging out, basically, just catching up from a long trip and everything. And then Grace looks to my wife. Her name's Meg. She looks up to Meg and she goes, are you going to get a tattoo? My wife, Meg, goes, I'm not sure yet if I really want to get a tattoo yet. I'm just kind of here to be 
in your company and here to do the water filters. And then Grace looks back at Meg and instantly says, if you want to get a tattoo, I have to do it. Out of curiosity, Meg asks, if I may ask why and what tattoo? And then Grace immediately goes, I want to give you a fertility tattoo. And Grace had no idea what had happened to us. And instantly, Meg, she started crying. I got really emotional. The founder of our organization, John Rose, was in tears. And within five minutes, Meg got this beautiful tattoo on the back of her left shoulder. And it's a fern, basically. It's a beautiful, beautiful fern. It's a fertility tattoo, and it's a gift, basically, from them. And for anyone who doesn't know, the community in Puskalan, the practice of traditional tattooing has been somewhat commercialized. And they commercialize it because they want to thrive in their community. And it's quite a good source of income for them to develop the schools and everything for the future of their community. And because of that kind of service, they kind of provide menu cards already that tourists and visitors can pick from. So it's not common anymore for the artist to kind of just decide a tattoo for you, especially not on the first time meeting. And this was Meg's first time to meet Grace. So uh, it was really an incredibly special moment to get that tattoo. We were all crying, just kind of watching it happen. And we came home and there was like this newfound energy in our own home to sort of like both move forward and also continue trying to get pregnant again. That's such a beautiful story and you choked me up there, R2. I mean, there must have been some kind of perhaps spiritual connection that Grace could sense perhaps what Meg had been through. And I so hope that helps. And I so hope that you get where you want to on that front. You'd make a wonderful father. And I haven't met Meg, but I'm sure she'd be a wonderful oh, she's the a best. wonderful mom too. And the fact you're working for Waves for Water, you work as a photojournalist, don't you, for Waves for Water, which is, a, I think, a US-based nonprofit organization. So what do they do? Their humanitarian work you've documented in lots of different places, haven't you? Yes. So I've been with Waves for Water for around eight years now. I started in the Philippines together with my wife. We did a story basically on Waves for Water on World Water Day. We loved the NGO so much that we asked if we could be part of the whole experience from that point on. And we had been volunteering, doing the storytelling of all the missions locally since then. And then we eventually met John Rose, our founder, and we really hit it off like family. Later on, I started doing assignments abroad and I found myself in Mongolia, Nepal, India, and Honduras, and most recently Bhutan. And Waves for Water has been so, so deeply connected to my wife and I's story where I actually proposed to Meg in Nepal on a mission there. I had been in Nepal for a month and Meg followed before we started a mission. And I kind of popped the question in front of John and everyone's. And on our wedding day, John Rose is actually our, uh, what we call Ninong, which is sort of like a godfather to our wedding. And he's been really like so close to us, like family. And I went to Bhutan earlier this year. And that was when I got back from Bhutan. And that's when my wife and I found out that we were pregnant. So it was right, like a huge celebration for us. Meg had just come from a local mission. So we kind of like both landed back in Manila on back-to-back days and we took a pregnancy test and poof, we found out we were pregnant. And it was like the happiest days, like just big celebrations. So uh, going back to uh, Buscalan, when I went back with Waves for Water and I gave Eliang my arm, I said, do whatever you feel like doing. 
she said, I want to make a band of mountains for you. And it just felt so unreal to hear that because for me, it connected me directly back to Bhutan, where I was walking in the most beautiful mountains. Now, every time I look at my arm, I kind of get reminded of the whole journey, discovering that we were pregnant to losing to the pain of it all. And it's a painful, but very, very authentic and genuine reminder of like how fragile life can be. Life is fragile. And I read a little bit about Waves for Water. Maybe you can explain what they do. But when you start to realize how many people don't have access to clean water, it beggars belief, I think, in this day and age. It's ridiculous, to be honest, to find so many stories where people don't have access to clean water. I have to quote John when he says, clean drinking water is a human right. That human right is not practiced enough. We've gone to a lot of missions in the Philippines and globally, the Waves for Water International has done so many missions in ground zero areas or the most remote places. And the one thing that we've learned is sometimes it's just a simple form of education. A lot of people in the remote places, they don't actually know where certain water-based diseases come from. We have learned to kind of explain to them that the bacteria comes from the water that they drink. And that water is contaminated from the manure of the animals that are providing them food or milk and the manure that kind of leaks into the streams and everything. And then they get that water and they drink that water. So basically, waves of water is a very, very simple non-electrical filtration system that can fit in your pocket. And it runs on the same system as a kidney dialysis, which is multiple layers of micro nets. In those nets, all the germs and all the bacteria is held back. And you're actually drinking quite healthy mineral water that has gone through all that processes of going through taking out all the dirt. So we have had quite the number of incredible stories. One example would be John had been in Nepal when one of the biggest earthquakes hit. He was in ground zero. He wasn't actually planning to be there during the earthquake, obviously. He was just there when the earthquake hit. He always packs filters with him. So he was a first responder and he came across this woman named Anjali, whose husband died from the earthquake and she was carrying maybe a two-month-old baby. She didn't have her husband anymore and she was kind of like shell-shocked from the whole thing. John, with all the effort that he could, gave Anjali a water filter and taught her how to use it and hoped that she would understand how it worked and apply it, especially to her baby over the years. In 2018, when I had actually proposed to my wife, John included myself and Meg back to Nepal and we went on a trip there to give more water filters and we were hiking along this ridge And suddenly John brought it up and he goes, I wonder what happened to that Anjali girl. And then we made a quick left turn to this small community of people. We asked them if they knew about this girl named Anjali. Literally, they pointed up and they pointed up at the mountain, basically just uphill from where John said, I wonder what happened to that Anjali girl. So we climbed this really, really tiny makeshift stairs. And we made it to this little hill. Out of this shack, which was by itself, came out Anjali. She looked at John and John looked at her and they just exchanged glances. And 
slowly, like just like in a movie, slowly out of the door came this two or three year old healthy baby. And Angelie goes, I have the filters. We go inside her little hut. She shows us how the filter works. We gave her another set of filters. We cleaned her filters for her, but the filter was in perfect condition. And this baby boy had no snot on his nose. He was healthy. He had color to his skin in comparison to a lot of the local Nepali kids. Incredibly healthy. And I won't forget, John came out of the booth and looked at Anjali and he goes, I'm so glad that I saw you. And Anjali in Nepali replies, no, I'm, I'm happier to see you. And uh, it was just the most incredible thing to see. Um, and it was also so inspiring to see the hard work of Anjali because in Nepal, the government actually has to incentivize men to marry widows. Because in the culture, women who have lost their husbands, no matter what, they are seen to be cursed. Men don't want to marry these women who have lost partners, regardless of the death. So the government has tried to incentivize it, and I don't think it has worked totally well. But it was just incredible to see Anjali kind of like working so hard to raise her child. And it was as if she had been waiting for John to come back all these years. And it's quite the story. That is a wonderful story. And you are an amazing storyteller, which comes through your photographs. I just wondered, just briefly before we wrap, what inspired you to become a photographer in the first place? I have to go back to a story about my grandfather, my late grandfather. I grew up with my grandfather. I never met my biological father. My mother raised me by herself until I met my stepfather, who kind of really became my father figure. He came around when I was eight, and I had been living with my grandfather all these years already with my mom. And my grandfather is a filmmaker here in the Philippines, known for quite a good popular number of movies here. His father is Jose Nepomuceno, who is the father of Philippine cinema. I come from a line of incredible filmmakers. And when I was in high school, I was only known for two things. I was known for basketball or making this particular cake call, which was an Oreo cake. Those are the only two things that I was good at. <laughs> so when I started submitting my college applications, I didn't think I was tall enough for basketball. So I thought, okay, I might as well become a chef. So I applied and when I got in, I recognized that everyone in my course of culinary arts were way more passionate than me. Incredibly passionate. And I felt it wasn't my place. So uh, I was walking along the hallways one day and I came across a poster, which was a, a school competition for photography. And it was open to all courses. So meaning a culinary arts could join. So I joined it and my background in photography, basically, it was a hobby in high school. I didn't think there was any money in it. I didn't think I had any future in it, but I loved it. I really loved it, but I didn't think there's anything at all to it. I joined the competition and I won it. And all my competition was photography students. So I kind of kind of had a reality check from there. And I went home and I went to my grandfather and I asked him, I kind of want to become a filmmaker like you. And the reason why I said filmmaker, not photographers, still, I didn't feel like there was any future there. But the idea of making movies sounded like a delight. So I told him, I want to make movies just like you. So there is this course in my school that is AB uh, film. Can I take this? And he goes, no, you have to take photography. 
And my grandfather had no idea that I won that competition that day just yet. I had not told him that story just yet. I just kind of threw the idea of becoming a filmmaker. And it just so happens that he advised me to take photography. So I go, why photography? And he goes, this has really engraved in my soul. How can you say that you can create a story through multiple images, which is what a film is, if you can't create a story through a single image? So ever since then, I've been obsessed with photography and trying to create stories in single images. And somewhere along the way, I've kind of just been obsessed with craft and I don't actually know if I want to be a filmmaker one day. I just really love where I am being a photographer. And I don't think I'm anywhere close to actually capturing stories in single images just yet. I think I have a long way to go. I'm going to disagree with you there. And I think we'll end on your grandfather's words. Really wise words. Uh, I did mention to you, Artu, that we have ended every podcast for the last few months, actually, talking about risk. And I just wondered what the biggest risk is that you've ever taken in your life. I've been giving this question a lot of thought. And I would say, despite going through death, just like many other people in this world, I actually don't think that relation to death is the biggest risk that I've had to take in my life. The biggest risk I've had to take in my life was back in the pandemic, I almost quit my photography because... I had no money and I didn't think I had any future anymore. And I didn't think I would survive through photography because there's no work at all. So I almost jumped into real estate, just jump into the corporate life, make money, find security. But something in me kind of told me that I had to stick to the craft and pay respect to the craft that I've learned to love. And I would say if I didn't take that risk, I don't think I'd be around today. I live and breathe photography. I, I'm obsessed with the art of storytelling. I'm obsessed with respecting people through images and paying and showing my love for people through images. If it wasn't for photography, I wouldn't have had that outlet to just release all these emotions. And I don't think I would be in a good place right now, or I might not even be here at all. That was like maybe the biggest risk. That's incredible. I, I do hope that you carry on doing what you do. You are a wonderful storyteller. I never ever thought I wanted a tattoo, but since reading the article and seeing your photographs, I want to go to Buskulan and I'd love to, hopefully Apu Wang Oud would be there, but to perhaps have something with her grandnieces and I'd love to feel that. So if you're up for a hike. Oh my gosh, Helen, name the date, the time. I will take you there. Find yourself in the Philippines. Yes, definitely. Uh, we can continue this podcast on the mountains. We will continue uh, this yeah. podcast on the mountains. And I will take you up on, on that offer. Definitely. Your story is, a, is an amazing story. I'm glad I've tracked you down. You've been a wonderful guest. And I just sense and know that we'll keep in touch and hopefully do that hike together in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, absolute pleasure on my end. No, I have to say, Helen, thank you for having me. This is a quite the incredible opportunity to have this beautiful, wonderful conversation with you. You and your family are wonderful people. I look forward to meeting all of you in person. Thank you for having me. It's an incredible opportunity to be able to talk more about the beauty of Apawangad. So thank you for that. Our conversation will continue. And if you want to see R2's work, then go to r2.photos.com. 
Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week. Who knows where I'll be around the world next week with another inspirational guest. Join me then. Thank you.